what's going on everybody welcome back to another episode of the core consults rx podcast today we got a topic that's a little bit how should we say out of our wheelhouse cole just a little bit kind of a little bit not as many uh, medications for this but uh, a lot of background information and some other stuff we'll talk about yeah well you know it's a common issue and um I don't know. I think the the thoughts about it have changed since I was a kid. So we're talking food allergies. Food allergies. And obviously there's all sorts of different food allergies. And you know, the the kid with the peanut allergy when you were young was always like the one who was made fun of. Mm. But you know, that's not the case. But it's a very unfortunate thing to have. Yes. And also bullying's out now. Bullying's out. It's not cool anymore. I'm not saying I bullied. Yeah, I don't take you as a bullier. I don't know that I have, but you yeah. know, there were people that I've, bullied. You saw, you witnessed bullying. There were, yeah, yeah, I witnessed it. And yet you did nothing. So technically you're an accomplice. <laughs> so I'm, a, I'm a bully accomplice. <laughs> so there's that. That's out there forever now. But it, it's interesting because even, I mean, you know, not that old. But when I was a kid, there seems like there's more kids now who have food allergies than I was. And then older people say that there's more kids then that had food allergies than when they were kids and that sort of thing. And the prevalence is increasing. So mm-hmm. whether it's just noticed more and tested for more... Or whether it's a real thing, we'll kind of uh, we'll kind of give maybe our, some of our opinions on that as we go throughout. But Kid, kids are just getting soft. That, there's that's one opinion. That's my <laughs> that's my hypothesis. And I'm sticking <laughs> so with. So Mike was the bully who made fun of the kid. No, I was a I was a dork at that age. Yeah, I was 110 pounds all through high school. Um. So yeah, we'll we'll like Mike said, we'll take you through some of the background, some of the common allergens, what you can do do to avoid them, and what to do in more emergent situations. Um, but yeah, food allergies, it's an immunological, um, issue. It's an adverse reaction mediated by foods. Any food protein can trigger an allergic response. Um, but there's a specific few that seem to be the most common culprits, right? Uh, milk, you hear about a lot, eggs, soy, um, fish and shellfish, trees, nuts, even wheat, um, which no, I guess trees, not necessarily, but tree nuts. Tree right? nuts, yeah. Yes. I but like, I mean, trees. you can be, you can obviously be allergic to other things. You're just not going to be other like pine needles and things. You're just not going to be eating them. Hopefully, so, tree nuts, wheats, like celiacs and stuff. Peanuts, you said. Peanuts is one of the nuts. Um, all those are are pretty common food allergies, right? Sesame starting to creep its way up the list. All right, so sesame not just good for popping positive on a um, on a drug screen. It's oh, true. Poppy oh. seeds? <laughs> or sesame, or, right. I think of a sesame bun, right? With something the poppy like that. seeds yeah, on yeah, yeah. Something like that. I don't think that's a real We thing. do very little research <laughs> before we just make a blanket <laughs> we statement. We do on our current topic. We just don't know about random other stuff Man. that we comment on. If we had, if we had someone here that really can, could kind of back us up on these facts, it would be such a resource. <laughs> yeah, we, we need a, a live like fact checker. Like right. at the end, we need like uh, somebody to tell us all the things we got wrong guys, throughout the episode. You guys were sixty percent right. Sixty percent of the time, you were correct. Everything else was nonsense. You said trees instead of tree nuts, and you said sesame instead of poppy seeds. Remember in like episode three that we ever did, you said like 900 billion people died. From the flu. <laughs> I think I said a hundred million died from the 1918 uh, flu pandemic. Afterwards we're like, wait, that seems like too it many. it was like a million. That seems like too many. <laughs> Just a few too many. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. All right. So, um, the, the like you said the the food allergy so it, it can be from a lot of different causes but you know it's like for example with milk it, it's um you know lactose intolerance uh, which can be from a deficiency of, of lactase enzyme that breaks down lactose in milk um and it can also occur from foods that are just causing you know some sort of like a um 
you, you know, other, other effects that cause like basically anaphylaxis. Now there's also adverse reactions to food that happen from like toxic type um, food. So like things that have like bacterial food poisoning um, or, or something like that, or food products that you know, contain things like caffeine or something like that that could uh, pharmacologically cause issues. Um, but there's sort of a lot of different, um, you know, comorbidities as well that can kind of be associated with these food allergies. A big one is, is atopic dermatitis. Now, as far as like its exact role in atopic dermatitis, it's kind of debated. Um, but there's some studies that have showed that uh, patients that have um, moderate or so chronic atopic dermatitis um, have 35 to 40% chance of having uh, IgE-mediated food allergies as well. Um, and so that's, they do think there's, they share some similarities there as far as the, the patho goes. And that kind of goes to uh, the ways that food allergies can present. So it can be more of a chronic disorder like Mike described with manifestations of atopic dermatitis or eosinophilic esophagitis. Um, they can involve the GI tract, the respiratory tract, all that stuff. Um, if it's more acute, you can have an anaphylactic reaction where it would be more respiratory tract, um, angioedema type thing where it's emergent and you're probably going to want to seek uh, medical care. Um, as far as which ones are more severe, investigations of near-fatal or fatal anaphylactic reactions after food ingestion um, show that the most common um, severe ones that could be fatal would be peanuts, tree nuts, not trees, and shellfish. Although milk has been increasingly reported, though we usually think of that as being one of the more mild ones, right? Because food allergies exist on a spectrum. It can make your stomach upset or it can kill you. Um, and generally, you would think of milk as being one that makes your stomach upset. But apparently, people have had anaphylactic reactions to milk, which would be really unfortunate. Right. Um, but yeah, the the reaction, an example, like Mike said, an example is lactose intolerance. Um, some of them are toxic, that sort of thing. But that's just some background on food allergies. All right, let's see. What do you want to go next? Um, I got some stats. Hit me with the stats. Hit you with some stats. So how common is it and who is it most common in? Um, so as far as um, the genders go, uh, it's more common in males um, when they're young, and it's more common in females when they're adults. Um, the prevalence of food allergies, it's kind of hard to gauge. Um, there's a lot of varying surveys out there. Um, it's estimated to be up to 8% in infants and children and about 3.7% in adults just in the general population. Um, but it appears that over the course of the last few decades, uh, it's generally increased by about 50% from where it was. So if, you know, like I said, 3.7% of gen the adult population has had a food, has a food allergy, maybe five to 6% does now. So the way you think about it, you would think that there's like 10 times as many people who have food allergies. Um, not necessarily, but the incidence is increasing. So it could just be because people are soft, like Mike says. Um, it could also be the way that, um, Kids are exposed to different things when they're young. There's a lot more soap, a lot more hand sanitizer, um, you know, maybe a, more avoidance of um, different viral infections and allergens in general. Um, they think that all those things could play a role in why we're seeing an increased incidence of food allergies. And everybody's like, why is everybody allergic to gluten now? 
um, that might play a part as well. And then diets being different and that sort of thing. As far as which ones are most common, uh, milk is probably the most common at about 2.5%. Um, eggs, uh, next, peanuts, wheat, and soy, kind of in that order. Um, as far as uh, in children, what the most common food allergens are. So as far as kind of some of the uh, ideology at play, um, there's first let's talk about the IgE, antibody-mediated responses. So that's a very um, widely recognized form of food allergy and uh, it can help, can kind of be the culprit behind those uh, acute reactions that we can see. So uh, basically what happens is the uh, these patients are producing these IgE antibodies to you know specific uh, epitopes, which would be like the... Um, areas of the protein that, uh, you know, the antibodies bind to. Um, and it, it binds to the epitopes of one or even more food allergens. Um, and then these antibodies are going to have really high affinity to the IgE receptors uh, on circulating basophils as well as like tissue mast cells. Um, and that's going to be throughout the entire body. So skin, GI tract, respiratory tract. Um, and then when you have this subsequent allergen exposure, you're going to get this, uh, you know, binding and cross-linking of those IgE antibodies on the cell surface, um, which is then going to cause the receptor activation, um, leading to basically the release of inflammatory mediators, um, as well as, you know, other uh, cytokines and whatnot. And basically you get this allergic inflammation. Um, and so because they're in the surrounding tissues, that's going to account for some of that vasodilation you can get or the um, smooth muscle contraction, depending on where it is, the mucus secretion. Um, and that's obviously what's going to be some of the more acute allergic reactions that patients will have. Now, like with cell mediated responses, um, you know, that can be um, seen more in like delayed or, you know, chronic type symptoms. So things like the food protein induced enterocolitis syndrome or uh, FPIs, I think is how you uh, would abbreviate that, F-P-I-E-S. I'm, I'm not exactly sure the uh, how that's the cool way to say that. I like F-Pies. I do too. I'm going to stick with it. That also might be somebody who really doesn't like pies. <laughs> that is also a theory. Um, but uh, it's that's the uh, gastrointestinal food allergy. Um, and in that case, it seems to be mediated by T-cells um, as far as like their effect um on the uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha, TNF alpha. And uh, so you'll see like basically patients, for example, with atopic dermatitis um, that flares up really bad when you have the, uh, an ingestion of milk. Um, they've seen that that's being associated with T-cell activation and um, again, kind of uh, activating some of those responses. Um, celiac disease is also uh, an immune response to like things like the gluten um, proteins and grains. And so it's, you know, come, kind of coming about it from a, like I said, cell mediated response. Um, and then as far as like risk factors go, um, you know, cause there's, there's other, uh, sort of, I guess, allergens across different mucosal surfaces, but to kind of save you from some of the genetic type stuff, um, the just overall risk factors. So presence of, um, asthma in a patient, um, especially if their asthma has been poorly controlled, uh, that can be a risk factor for sort of having, a not only a, a food allergy, but a, you know, food induced anaphylaxis as well. Um, and then patients who have a previous episode, obviously of, um, anaphylaxis, as a result of eating a certain food, they're going to definitely have a higher chance, especially if there's other foods they're not aware of that they're allergic to. Um, and then patients that 
are basically not recognizing that the symptoms that they're having um, are indicative of anaphylaxis because they're not going to uh, maybe seek the the treatment that they need right away. Um, and then if the patients are not able to get access to uh, epinephrine um, to treat their anaphylactic reaction, um, those are the ones that are going to have a higher chance of having a, a fatal experience, obviously, with these food-induced um, allergies or in, in anaphylaxis. So mm-hmm. it's not something that's going to happen a lot. And we're getting better, like Cole said, of kind of identifying these patients and making sure they have things to um, manage a, an anaphylactic reaction to food. But it, unfortunately, deaths and whatnot still are happening. Yep. And uh, there's some things in the pike coming that'll help with sensitization. We have one for peanuts, which we'll talk about at the end. Um, but we talked about some of the manifestations and what it might look like. Um, but as far as a physical exam goes, some symptoms that you might see of a patient who has food allergies. Um, obviously, if it's acute, it'll be pretty obvious. They might have angioedema um, or orphangeal puritis. They might have itching and um, they're going to have trouble breathing. Um, wheezing, possibly strider. Um, if it's less acute, they might just have nausea and vomiting. Could be GI-related, diarrhea, flushing, um, abdominal pain. Um, sometimes, you know, with this or with other things, they'll describe that feeling of impending doom. Um, but all symptoms that you could have with a with a uh, food allergy. Taking their history is pretty important with this um, because it's not always super obvious what the um, offending agent is. So um, a thorough medical history is important. So maybe a, developing a complete list of all the foods you suspect, right? So just let's come up with a list. Um, talk about how the foods are prepared. Um, are they cooked? Are they raw? What spices are you using? Um Talk if the patient is aware of what food it is. Talk about what the minimum quantity uh, that's required to kind of produce the symptoms. Um, are the symptoms reproducible, uh, or did they just happen once and they ate the same thing and it didn't happen again? Um, talk about family history. Whether people they know uh, in their family, direct or indirect, um, have other food allergies. Um, are there other um, listening factors like? Uh, drugs like NSAIDs or other things like alcohol or exercise, that sort of thing. All that to kind of paint the picture to figure out what exactly it is and kind of narrow it down. Um, you want a description of each um, reaction. Uh, is it uh, from ingestion? It can be skin contact. You can inhale something. Um, what was the timing? Um, what? How severe was it? How long did it last? How often does it happen? All those things are going to kind of paint a picture uh, for what you think it is and then what we can do to help mitigate and prevent that from happening in the future. Cause it's not like we can give them, you know, a statin and prevent their food allergies. A lot of it's just going to be lifestyle changes. And, and also too, this kind of goes without saying, but also assessing them for other comorbidities are often associated with this. So patients with atopic dermatitis or asthma or allergic rhinitis, um, that can also kind of lead you down one one path or the other. Because if some of the symptoms, like for example, a lot of the um, the GI symptoms or respiratory symptoms, they can kind of happen, especially if it's a more chronic allergy situation, not even necessarily like anaphylaxis. But a lot of like the GI complaints that people have, you know, I mean, that can be easily be something as simple as, not, I shouldn't say simple, but it could be just inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome. Um, it could be, you know, something along the lines of some sort of like a bacterial gastroenteritis or viral, um, you know, patients could have just really bad uncontrolled reflux. Um, you know, there's lots of things that can, uh, can lead 
to these types of symptoms. So that differential diagnosis is going to be really important. Um, also obviously looking for things like celiac or, um, another thing would be looking for patients that maybe have some sort of underlying eating disorder too, like bulimia, um, or something along those lines. Um, depending on how severe the, the GI symptoms are, especially if they have diarrhea associated with it, maybe looking for like C. diff, um, you know, lots of different things we could go into, but yeah, make sure that you're getting a full history. Yeah. And I mean, there's some tests you can run as well. So you can do serum studies. You can test for um, IgE antibodies to certain foods. There's ways to do that that can give you some information. Um, you probably will instruct the patient to keep a diet diary, which is going to keep you know a record of all the foods they've eaten and whether there were associated symptoms and adverse effects and that sort of thing. Um, it's uh, what most people will think of in this situation and may try to do on their own is an elimination diet. Um, that can be helpful for diagnostic and treatment purposes. Um, usually best if done under the direction of a physician, depending on how, uh, how much they're going to eliminate. Uh, but it just involves taking away a specific food group that you think might be an offending agent for a certain period of time and seeing what happens. So usually it's over 7 to 14 days. Um, but if you're trying to do it diagnostically, then maybe you say cut out milk for a week to two weeks and let's see what happens. Um, or if we've determined that milk is the, you know, offending agent, then we're going to uh, try to eliminate that from the diet. Um, so yeah, elimination diets are a common thing and people will almost surely try that on their own if they have presumed that their maybe mild food allergy is related to food. Uh, there's also skin testing so they can prick and puncture, um, and, uh, see, uh, reactions. And these are kind of hit or miss. I mean, you'll see these done a lot and these can be done, um, uh, to a, a very young age, like I think a few months old, you can do skin prick tests. Um, when doing them, it does like the sensitivity depends on whether it was a negative test or a positive test. If it's a negative test, you, it's very likely that you are negative um, to that to that um, allergen. So I think there's about a ninety percent chance you're negative to that to that allergen. If it's a positive skin prick test, it's less sure, maybe about fifty fifty, as to whether you're actually allergic to that or if you just responded to this individual um, pinprick test. So I'm kind of hit or miss there, but if, if you don't respond, then that's a good thing. Probably not going to be the offending agent. Um, there can also be medically supervised food challenges to confirm a food allergy. This sounds a little bit distressing. So It, <laughs> it sounds like a hot dog eating contest. Right. It's a food challenge. It's a medically supervised hot dog eating contest. Except a 17-pound burger. The person comes in and they're like, every time I drink milk, I have diarrhea. Okay, well, we need to confirm this. So we're going to have Here's you drink a, gallon of milk. a whole gallon of milk. We'll no. be in to check on you in a minute. Don't do that. Um yeah, but that, that's a thing that you can use, and it actually matters because, you know, some of this could be psychological, so um, you might have to have it blinded. You might have to have a placebo, like there's uh, double-blind placebo-controlled food challenges. They even have an acronym, D-B-P-C-F-C. Um, that's, all, that's harder to say than the actual I, phrase. I know. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, but it, it, it's uh, because, you know, maybe it's it's psychological because there's a lot of things going on serotonin-wise in the gut. So maybe you just get an anxious stomach every time you drink milk and it's not quite a clear allergy. So we want to just make sure before we have to cut milk out of your diet. You know, I had to go milkless for a few months when I was a kid. Did you? Well, I was just having a lot of stomach problems. And um, the only thing we, which it's not like we got me checked out or anything. So the only thing my mom decided it was, was, was milk. 
Um, so I had like the lactate milk and the lactate ice cream, which was really good. I actually liked it better than, um, than regular ice cream. Really? Shout out to lactate. Yeah. yeah. Nice um, lactate. Now I probably wouldn't think it was very smooth. Like that Briars, like not real ice cream that you'll get that uh-huh. scoops really well, like the vanilla bean. Um, <laughs> that was oddly specific. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I remember from when I was a kid. It was great. You're familiar with the, uh, 1990, 1995 Briars, uh, line where they had the, uh, vanilla bean ice cream. That was good. As Cole's a big uh, ice cream kind of Well, <laughs> we are, you know, because as long as we're on this topic, ice cream brands range significantly as far as quality <laughs> of ice cream. So what, what matters is how much air they inject into the ice cream. Hmm. So when you look at a tub of ice cream, if it can say ice cream, premium ice cream, or it could say frozen dairy dessert. If you're getting that's the cheap stuff. If oh. you're if you're getting frozen dairy See, that dessert, that sounds more bougie. No, it's no good. Okay, it means that when no they good. were mixing it together, they injected a lot of air in there, so a lot of it's fluff. So if you you can even hold the gallon of frozen dairy dessert, then hold the gallon of like bluebell, which is a plus, <laughs> right? Right, right. And you can tell the difference in the weight because they've injected a bunch of air into it, so it fills up the container, but it's really light and it's not even considered real ice cream. That's Frozen probably uh, with the the little low carb like the Halo tops. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure. What's great is like you know I'm trying to just get some kind of in shape now that I'm in my 30s and not an <laughs> athlete anymore. Um, and so uh, what my wife will do is she'll get the delicious ice cream for herself, and then like I'll just get like a Halo top where it's like <laughs> it's basically like if you've ever eaten um, like uh, I don't know like maybe cotton out of a bag. <laughs> That's what it tastes like. <laughs> So it's, I just sit here and watch her eat hers and I just eat my bowl of fluffy cotton and then I just put it away because I'm angry. Now, another way to tell is if you look at the grams, I bet that halo top is a pretty small amount of grams because there's a lot of air in there. AJ, I bet you had no idea that we were both ice cream experts, mostly coal. It's <laughs> making me know uh, I'm a novice here. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I could take one look at you and realize this if, guy doesn't know anything about ice cream. cream. If you're ever wondering, Blue Bell is just high quality ice cream. It's just fantastic. I did write that down. I, Good. I, I did not realize that Cole is such an ice cream snob. I really don't eat it that much. It's just now that I know. Huh. I know. No, you know? And yeah. it's like you eat the frozen dairy dessert. It. It's like this is like the stuff I grew up eating. Can't even eat that anymore. Yeah. No, it's like a waste of calories. It's like peasant ice cream. Peasant ice cream. So the point is, I did. I went. I don't think I had a true um, lactose allergy or anything. We just did a little mini elimination diet, and after a few months, I tried milk again, and it was fine. So you had an allergic to cheap ice cream that's what it was you that's what i was real, that's to. what it was i needed the real stuff you were like dude i don't know what you i don't know why you're trying to save a buck here but i need real <laughs> ice cream mom yeah but those are all just going circling back those are all ways to uh to confirm or test for a food allergy uh to know what we need to do um obviously too if you are going to do some sort of a food allergy this needs to be done in the clinic or hospital setting that have like the appropriate personnel and equipment that you know if somebody does have a systemic reaction um you know you can right. treat that you, you don't want to take your safety pin at home and dip it in milk and then prick the back of their back don't do that yeah no that's ill-advised that's a bad idea very much so and then uh you know also check to see if they're taking any sort of um you know medications that could interact or, or interfere with the the treatment itself of anaphylaxis so like make sure they're not on chronic beta blockers or something like that um so yes we want to make sure that we do this very carefully if you do the the uh food challenge yep let's see what um what else you want to go to any other challenge there's, there's a whole bunch of uh these these challenges we have single blind and double blind and all that there's stuff all sort of, there's a lot of acronyms you really get a, you really get carried away with that it's just if you're if you're worried about whether or not it's truly an allergy. That's when you go down that rabbit hole, but we won't. 
Um, so yeah, I'm ready for some some treatment options. You want to go to the treatment? Yeah, sure. All right, because um, the other thing too is the uh, actual. Um, what is it? The uh, allergy testing oh, as yeah. well. You can do that. I, I didn't talk um, about that. All right. Let me see. I just got out of that screen. <laughs> the um, intradermal skin testing, for example. Um, and so uh, the issue with that is the, the risk of inducing um, like a systemic reaction with this type of testing tends to be a little bit more than something like goes in with the skin prick uh, test. Um, but the intradermal um, testing for food allergies, you know, is still a thing, but it's really advised to be avoided at this point just because of the increased risk of, uh, you know, anaphylaxis and whatnot. Um, the other thing would be like a, like what they call a patch test where you're basically exposing the the skin to a specific food allergen for 24 hours. Um, and then, uh, kind of evaluating the area to see, you know, if there's any sort of, uh, uh, erythema or papules that kind of pop up within a day or, you know, a day to three days afterwards. Um, and you know, this can help with patients who have, uh, um, food allergies. It's in, um, it's associated with eosinophilic esophagitis, um, or enterocolitis, um, as well as atopic dermatitis. Um, and then there's, there's some studies that are, uh, looking at, you know, how effective this technique can be in other, you know, uh, areas and how it can be utilized elsewhere. Um, and then also looking at, uh, like total IgE concentrations as far as from like a peripheral, uh, serum measurement of eosinophils, um, that can also in, in some cases give you, uh, it doesn't confirm diagnosis, but can give you more information. Uh, there's things like basophil histamine release assays. Um, but you know, that's again, an area of more research and whatnot. Um, there's a whole bunch of other ones, um, food specific IgG, um, IgG subclass antibiotics body concentration testing. There's leukocyte cytotoxic tests, um, the kinesiology based testing. There's all kinds of stuff that's on the horizon, if you will, but we just don't have, um, evidence that shows that they're super effective at being able to truly diagnose or not. So, you know, be aware that there's a lot of different things out there. If you're in this space, uh, hopefully you can shed some more light on the, uh, this as, as time goes on and more data comes, comes through. Yeah. Cause there's actually going to be, I mean, new drugs coming out, to. Mm-hmm. to kind of prevent these things from happening. Um, yeah, so as far as treatment, I'm actually going to start with like the more emergent treatment, which is probably a little more intuitive and what people are familiar with, and then we can talk about some of the prevention and um, other diet-specific treatment measures. Uh, but for the for the most part, what you think of is correct. You would want um, an EpiPen and an emergency plan kind of along with that if you have a patient who has a food allergy um, especially if you know that it is severe and anaphylactic, but even if you're not sure and the patient wants reassurance and peace of mind, seems fine for them to carry an EpiPen around and, and, and just have one. Um, so coming up with an emergency plan is the first step. They actually have some, uh, some forms online that you can fill out. And if it's a kid, you can turn them into daycare, schools, work, uh, college dorms, whatever. So that they have kind of a, something on hand, um, to know that, that you have that, especially if it's definitely severe and life-threatening. Um, it's advised that patients wear some sort of medical identification, uh, like jewelry indicating that they have a food allergy. Um, I mentioned the EpiPen to uh, be able to carry that around and have it accessible and have proper, um, uh, proper training on how to use that. Um, uh, emergency contact is part of the emergency plan, um, and having that available and then anticipatory measures, um, if, you know, for if, uh, 911 needs to be called and, um, so that the, the places that they're at, like school or work or daycare has those things on hand, so they can just have a plan and, and, and feel comfortable with it. Uh, as far as the 
EpiPen or the, I should say, the epinephrine injection comes in multiple brand names. Um, there is a adult dose. There's also a kid dose, and that's uh, weight-based for the actual EpiPen brand. Um, it's an auto-injector device that can be injected through cl- clothing as well if you need to. Uh, there's other brands. One's called Adrenaclick. There's also AviQ, which is a more, um, I guess, recent one. The big thing with it is that it can talk to you. Uh, so I I have not used one personally, but um, I imagine that it's kind of like a... Uh, you know, like a defibrillator device that you're going to find at your local, you know, grocery store or something hanging on the wall that it'll talk to you and hopefully will be generally foolproof if you're so somebody who's not trained can use it appropriately. Um, wasn't the AviQ device the same? Wasn't it a similar device that was in that um, NARC? It was not, it wasn't NARCAN, but it was the uh, naloxone the injection. Um, yeah, one. It, what was that thing? I can't remember what it was called now, but it was the one that basically walked you through. Um, it would start with an E, like Evoke, or I can't remember. I'm not sure. Now. But it basically was like $4,000 for NARCAN when you can just. Right. So it, it didn't do well, super well in the market. When but I've seen AviQ tried to be dispensed usually it's rejected by insurance and they want EpiPen. I, th- I think it's a similar device i may be making that up but for some reason i feel like i've seen one it's th- it was the same device just kind of like recycled right and uh the EpiPen is generic now there's generic epinephrine pens does that mean it's cheap no um so there's a big controversy about that a couple years ago but they remain pretty pricey they're not as pricey as they were then um, but that's a definite frustration when this is literally a life-saving device. Um, but in an emergent situation, there's other drugs that might be used for other general things, but for the most part, the EpiPen is obviously standard. There's bronchodilators. You don't want to use that alone, but it can help um, you know, open up the airways if you need to. Oxygen, glucagon in severe situations. Uh, then for more mild symptoms medication-wise, Antihistamines, right? This would be the first thing you would think of. A kid having a mild allergic response would get uh, Benadryl or something like that. Also, H2 blockers. I actually saw that a fair amount um, in uh, in um, uh, practice. I think they would usually use um, cimetidine, weirdly. I don't know if that's the best idea. Um, but for allergy-type things, um, I would see cimetidine a lot. But in general, H2 blockers can be used to kind of uh, mediate a mild allergic response and it makes sense too because if you're thinking about just because something's selective it doesn't mean it's i mean purely only selective to that and you're going to get a little bit cross reaction there so if you're having an allergic reaction you're giving your h1 blockers or your traditional antihistamines to block that side of things but you might get some h2 activity so it's almost just kind of like little sprinkles on top to block the other the other side of the sprinkle of some editing yeah a little sprinkle of drug interactions right (laughs) don't even get me started on (laughs) ranitidine Which, I mean, have we already talked about that they're branding them? Yes. Oh, my gosh. So stupid. I literally it's the saw new a, formulation. I saw a commercial of it. It's called... Um, Zantac. Zantac 360 is what oh, they're calling it. That's awesome. Just add the we 360. We need to come up with that. And we, we can need to rip come off up with Pepsid. Core, core console acid relief. 360? <laughs> Famotidine 20. No, ours is going to be 720. <laughs> 720. Or, ours is going to be like, you know that... Those you need so many spins in your, in your treatment <laughs> algorithm or whatever. Ridiculous. <laughs> stupid. Um, but yeah, it, the other thing I just want to mention too about the emergency plan, I, don't, I didn't, I don't know if you noticed or mentioned this Cole, but, um, with the, uh, if you're, ha- you know, as far as like coming up with an emergency quote unquote plan, um, if it's, it's not something you just want to draw from scratch, they do have like example plans that you can download at www.foodallergy.org. Yep. So making sure if you you know, your patient doesn't feel comfortable, if you don't have like those documents to kind of hand out to patients, make sure that, uh, they visit that website and get some more information. Yep. All right. 
Um, so we went through all the emergency meds. I guess we'll talk about uh, this new uh, peanut allergen powder. Yeah, go for it. So it's kind of the first of its kind on the market, but it's uh, it was approved in 2020. Um, I can't say that I've personally run into anybody on this at this point, but um, it's uh, Palforzia, and it's literally just a peanut allergen powder. Um, as if, if not surprisingly, it has a black box uh, warning associated with it um, because believe it or not, it can cause a reaction if you're giving peanut uh, allergen powder to somebody. Uh, but it's, it's something that you, that um, can be used to kind of um, slowly administer the dose up to get the patient more uh, accustomed to the, in their system. But it's a very, very slow process over many weeks. Um, basically the patient is starting at um, the three milligram dose, um, which is there's 11 different dosing levels. That, so the, they start at three milligrams and you can do that. Um, the first initial dose is going to be uh, under um, physician supervision to make sure they don't have a reaction. Um, and then each time you uh, go up on the dose, then you want to make sure that you again do under supervision, but three milligrams for two weeks, then it goes to six milligrams for two weeks, then 12 for two weeks, then 20, then 40, then 80, then 120, then 160, 200, 240, 300, each two-week intervals. And again, each time you go to a new um, dose, you want to do that higher dose at a uh, under the supervision of a, a clinician and make sure that they do have an issue that you can kind of attack that. And for reference, I won't go into all the details of the trial that got it approved, but um, 100 milligrams of this drug is approximately one-third of a peanut kernel. Yeah, that's very small. One-third of a peanut kernel. So it's a very small amount. But I guess in some people that can cause, uh, you know, most severe allergic reactions. So, it, you know, once you get up to the 300 um, milligram dose, then you're just kind of staying there as far as the maintenance dosing. And that's one peanut kernel. Right. You have one peanut kernel worth of powder. <laughs> now, what happens if, because this is daily use, what happens if you miss a dose? Um, the package insert says that uh, if you miss one to two consecutive days, basically you're just resuming the dose at the same interval um, and uh, continue at the same dose level as well. Three or more consecutive days, that's where things get a little bit uh, murky. <laughs> so basically, if you look at the package insert, it says has not been studied, please contact healthcare provider, which is you guys. <laughs> so the good news is, is you're going to have to make it up on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it's going to be something that uh, you probably want to go ahead and res if you do resume dosing at the same level, bring them back in and do it under supervision just to be safe. Or just start back at, I mean, if there's no guidance, I mean, if, I, if it was me and there was no guidance and this was a severe reaction, maybe start back lower. But yeah, yeah. Uh, or if you can supervise them and just watch. Yeah. I would just say, dude, you know what? Not only are we going to start back the same, we're going to increase it again and see what happens. <laughs> then we'll have data. And then go home. Here's your, then we're gonna go, okay. here's your kernel and a half. And the then thing is, that was... Take two and go home. <laughs> now we know what happens. So we're going to know that we need to back that dose down. And that's my contribution to, to science. I feel real good about it. Um, and then, obviously, if a patient's not uh, able to you know, tolerate it, we do want to discontinue because we don't want to kind of force it if they can't tolerate it. Um but, uh, you know, if you have any sort of, um, you know, patient who's unwilling to take daily dosing or, um, you know, they have issues with like losing control of their, uh, asthma symptoms, um, uh, they have suspected eosinophilic esophagitis, um, then we probably need to, uh, 
you know, look at getting rid of it. Um, all right. So what else, is anything else in particular on that? Um, that's all I had on that. And it is, it's approved in, uh, children only. Is that, am I correct on that? I think it's only up to 17. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. So I think it was, uh, FEC was not shown in participants 18 years of age and older. Mm. Um, I need to uh, double check myself so I don't say something stupid, but, um, it comes as, it does come as a capsule and a, a sprinkle packet. So pick your poison there, but the sprinkle packet is the 300 milligrams. So that's not obviously used for the dose titration. Right. Um, yeah. Cause I think the, so much dead airspace. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> As I'm looking for the answer. Well, while you're looking, which um, it sounds like you're right. I mean, that, that would that would make sense. It's, this is most common in kids for sure. Um, but the last thing I have is probably the most important treatment option, which is most commonly used, which is diet, right? So we have the one med that might help with peanut allergies, not all peanut allergies, um, but that's still pretty niche, right? We don't have uh, things out yet that are going to help with other allergies. So um, an elimination diet is probably going, or otherwise known as allergen restriction, is probably going to be the best thing um, that you can do. So a properly managed, well-balanced elimination diet can uh, resolve symptoms and avoid nutritional deficiencies, right? That's why it's important to do it under supervision. So you want to talk to the family about how to properly read food labels, uh, identify common words that might indicate the presence of an allergen. There are laws on the books, in the U.S. at least, uh, that require major allergens to be listed um, and identified as ingredients um, using, quote, plain English. Uh, But some of those might be egg, milk, wheat, soy, peanuts, tree nuts, fish, crustacean, and shellfish. All those should be on there. Uh, but not all potential allergens are listed and included. Some might be under spices or natural flavors. Um, so yeah, you, you if, especially if it is severe allergic reaction, you want to make sure that you're being as careful as possible and, and seeing whether it has that or not. Um, preparing meals needs to be needs to consider. Um, avoiding cross contact through shared utensils or other appliances that might um, come in contact with the allergen. So either just totally keeping it out of the house or, or wiping those things down. Um, with elimination diets, you want to exclude only the foods that you know are going to provoke an allergic response, which is why that diagnostic um, food elimination diet is important. So we know exactly what it is and we're not having to eliminate a bunch of stuff um, to reduce risk for, um, you know, um, deficiencies and that sort of thing. One, one thing too, I need to make sure I add in cause I, I forgot to mention this. So the, with the part that I was talking about with the dose titration, the up phasing. So before that, cause I, cause I was talking about when you start at three milligrams, um, I totally didn't even mention the initial, like, so there's the initial dose escalation phase, which is done like in a, basically a single day. So you're starting with 0.5 milligrams. So that's like the very like tiny dose. And then, um, you're waiting uh, 20 to 30 minutes, um, basically, uh, to kind of see how they respond if they're doing okay. And this is all done in clinic with the under supervision. Um, and then you would go up to the one milligram, 20, 30 minutes, then 1.5, then three, then six. Um, and then after six, you have to wait 60 minutes, um, to make sure that they don't have any you know, issues and, and, and whatnot. And the package insert says that's specifically in patients who were, um, four years of age or older up to, uh, 17. Um, and then once you've hit that dose, then that's when you're going to the, uh, 
um, the the up dosing phase where you're doing that every two week all the way up to 300. So I'd make sure I mentioned that before. Nice. Stick my foot in my mouth. Um, the last thing that I think is pretty interesting is there can be cross reactivity between similar allergens, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, people wonder which came first, chicken or egg. Um, eggs and chickens, or I should say egg eggs and chicken meat that you would eat. It's a gross way to put it, right? Chicken meat. Um, you can have a cross cross reaction with those. So you have an egg allergy. There's about a 5% chance that you may also be allergic to actual chicken, which to me is like, there's a 95% chance that you're not allergic to chicken. Um, which I'm wondering, here's what I'm wondering. This is presuming that these are chicken eggs that you're eating. What if you have a, like a snake egg allergy or like an ostrich egg allergy? Then what does that mean? Are you allergic to snakes? I don't know. Um, <laughs> There's all cow milk, right? So cow milk can have some have some cross reactivity. Um, one with beef. So people who have an allergy to cow milk have about a ten percent chance to ha- also be allergic to beef. People who have a cow milk allergy have about a ninety percent chance to be allergic to goat milk. So bummer, I can't drink any more of that goat milk. Um, uh, fish. There's um, greater than fifty percent um, allergic chance to any fin fish that you're just reactive to all types of fin fish, which is a bummer. Um, peanuts and legumes, soy and other legumes, wheat and grains, and then tree nuts and other nuts, greater than 50% chance that it, that you will have some cross-reactivity. So um, that's an interesting factoid, but also you know a, a warning that if you have this one allergy, you might want to test or avoid other similar things because you could have some cross-reactivity. Um, and kind of going back to uh, our, our medication that we were discussing, one thing I do want to make, because I, I know we said that it comes as uh, the sprinkle capsules and a powder that once you get to that higher dose, but the capsules are not meant to be swallowed. So that's the, the other spring, thing. You yeah, bust them open. The, exactly. So you're, there's sprinkle capsules because you're actually open. I just want to make sure we also clear that up because that's a good counseling point for people in, you know that are involved with dispensing this and whatnot. But um, you're opening the capsule and uh, or the packet, obviously, and putting it um, onto a small amount of something like applesauce, yogurt, pudding, some sort of semi-solid food, um, and then immediately giving it to, to the patient. Um, and then also making sure that after you've kind of mixed it up, if it's you know, you're doing the mixing for the child. Make sure you wash your hands, obviously, afterwards because the powder can be left in your hands residually and then you can touch the child and if they have contact uh, reaction as well, then not good. Problematic. So, yeah. Just want to make sure I mention that too because it's, you know, oral can be, uh, or a capsule just a lot of times is assumed to be oral. Not too many. I can't think of any other medications that are commonly used that you would open up the capsule every time you take it. I think there's a Topamax sprinkle. Oh, I think there's a Depakote sprinkle cap. Mm, that's true. And I, I guess I never. I guess Spariva handy healer had right. the capsules that were meant to inhale the powder. But I guess I never thought about it. But I guess if it says sprinkle cap, it probably is meant to be sprinkled. Because yeah. there's, I think there's a Topiramate sprinkle cap. Mm-hmm. As well. Yeah, I think there is. Interesting so, for kids, most of for kids. Yep. Those peace people. I like how this article said to also encourage avoidance of high risk situations like buffets and picnics. Yeah. Did you ever think a buffet or a picnic would be considered high risk for anything except for heart disease? Have you ever seen? I was going to say, have you? Yeah, it's <laughs> high risk for. Uh, no more Golden Crow. Yeah, no. If you no, if you go to Golden Crow, you need to see me after class because that is just a bad life choice. There's no way. No, no offense if you own a Golden Corral franchise, but I went in there one time. I'm sure we younger. have a lot of people listening who own Golden Corral franchise. Big Golden Corral fans that listen to this podcast. But yeah. Ugh. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, before every football game, we they would we would all go to Golden Corral. Carb up. 
carb up. Just an awful, in, in hindsight, awful idea. Oh, there's it's a, the worst. There's a really good documentary on um, Netflix about like, you know, meat, like meatless diets and that sort of thing and athletes and all that. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, we were just gunking up our, just gunking up our arteries with fats. And I mean, it was just a bad idea. I'll, I'll show you all the rebuttals to that documentary. Okay. Whether or not that's, that's good or, okay. Whether or not that's true, either way, we weren't a very good football team. So no, this might have played a part in that. No offense to any of our vegetarian or vegan listeners. We love you guys. But that, or that, that, that I had a few issues with that thing. I'm and I'm glad that there's people that do that diet, but I definitely will not say that I'm meatless. But it was it, takes, a com- it was a yeah. compe- I will say it's compelling. It, yeah, it was interesting. Um, but yeah, it, it, so some other stuff that they're uh, kind of have on the the horizon. There's definitely studies that are being evaluated right now, looking at different like oral or sublingual um, immunotherapies, and uh, look specific. You know, made specifically for different food allergies, um, and uh, those are all kind of underway. So hopefully, we'll have some new new treatment options um, fairly soon. Um, there's also some uh, studies looking at things like. Um, the uh, olizumab, um, the um, Zolaire. Zolaire, and then uh, using that in conjunction with immunotherapy um, is also being uh, looked at. And, um, you know, so there's there's definitely some things on the horizon, but uh, hopefully we'll have some solid uh, things pretty soon. I okay. think there's one on a specific, um, uh, it's an IgE-mediated cow's milk protein um, allergy that. treatment. So very specific, CMPA. Uh, cow's milk protein allergy. That's the everything's got an acronym. Everything in here has got an acronym. But um, that's being studied at 150, 300, and 500 microgram doses, and it has uh, 198 milk allergic patients in it. Wow, uh, it showed to be statistically significant uh, desensitization of uh, to milk in children two to eleven years old. We're gonna nip food allergies in the bud. Someone's got to. We're gonna nip it. Nip you it. know, have we done one on celiac? I think we did, right? That's supposed to be your job okay. is to keep track of All what right. we've covered. You know I don't keep track. I will of that. look, but this that would be a good follow up to this. But I think I, we did it already. I don't know what we did last episode. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's Cole's job for sure. Um, anything else with this? That's all I got, man. Um, AJ, we forget anything? Nothing. We got it. Right on. I just wanted to hear uh, AJ's deep, uh, a commanding voice. Yes. <laughs> Wish I sounded cool like that. <laughs> Get less uh, ridicule, uh, re- less ridiculed on uh, the comment section. Just comparing you to Joe Rogan. So yeah. who would he can be? Who would he be compared to? Who? Somebody with a deep, commanding voice. AJ. Uh, I have to think about it. I don't know. Dude that plays Darth Vader. There yeah. we go. That's what's it. his name? Which is um, what's his name? He's great. It'll come. Man, everybody's screaming it. It's like it's that guy from Field of Dreams. Glover? No, what's his name? What's the heck is his name? Yeah, Field he's of Field of Dreams, right? Or is it Sandlot? No, Dude. I think he's in Field of Dreams. Oh no! Yeah, we have to Google this in the middle of the show. I think he was blind. James in Field of Earl Dreams. Jones. James Earl Jones. There we go. What did I say? Fact check of the day. Thank you, AJ. Okay, AJ, you got a new opportunity to really capitalize on your position over there, and that's Google the nonsense that comes out of our mouth. Which I'm really upset that we didn't know who played Darth Vader. By the way, did I know. we should have known that? <laughs> Hayden Christensen's the only person who plays Darth Vader, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Oh, that was the nerdiest thing we've ever said in this podcast in the history of this podcast. No, we've said some nerdy Marvel stuff. That's okay. Okay. All right. We'll take it. All right. 
Anyways, sorry guys, to those of you who get annoyed by that. We've saved it uh, to the very end to really throw you off. But um, <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I hope you uh, are still liking the show. Um, definitely let us know if you have any questions, concerns, comments, any of that good stuff. Send us an email to be in the show notes. Um, you can also reach us on pretty much any of the social media platforms. Uh, if you have any ideas for topics or want to be a guest or anything like that, then uh, you know for sure let us know. Um, and we'll see if you make the cut. <laughs> Just kidding. It's not a very rigorous uh, application process. And, um, you know, you can also uh, reach out to us uh, via text if you want. So you send a text to 415-943-6116. Um, we'll get back to you on any of those platforms as quick as we can. Um, might not be instant, but we'll do our best. Um, also, check out our Patreon account if you want more uh, lecture-style um lectures, if you will, <laughs> topic discussions on various disease states I think we have. Going on, uh, we're getting close to 100 lectures on, wow. on Patreon, I think. So thousands of PowerPoint slides. And um, yeah, so I've even had some people reaching out saying they've used it for uh, studying for the BCPS and things like that. Cool. So, uh, yeah. Turns out we're a BCPS study program now, <laughs> officially. So if you guys wanted to, want, uh, we guarantee 100% success <laughs> or your $3 back. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I feel like that's an easy one to to go with. <laughs> they're not going to chase it down for it's $3. A no, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. So it's good. It's the right business book. Anyways, thank you guys so much. And uh, we'll, we'll try to stay more focused next, next, uh, next episode. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks.